0: You're listening to the 10-Minute Medic, the podcast for the busy paramedic student. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Young. This week's podcast will take a look at the pathophysiology of the endocrine system as well as a deeper discussion as to how it works. The pancreas lies just behind the stomach and is considered an organ of digestion. It's a small organ weighing about three ounces. It has both endocrine and exocrine functions. Endocrine refers to the delivery of hormones directly into the blood. Exocrine has to do with the delivery of hormones via specialized ducts. Hormones are used to regulate a specific action within an organ system. They function much like messengers from the brain with definite orders for cells to perform a particular action. They do this by acting on hormone receptor sites that may be on the outside or the inside of the cell. Hormone secretion is controlled by a feedback system that relies upon either positive or negative feedback. In a positive feedback system, the output of the pancreas increases the stimulus that starts the process. One of the most common examples given of the positive feedback system is the production of the hormone oxytocin during childbirth. As the child descends into the birth canal, pressure receptors in the cervix send a neural message to the brain to continue the production of oxytocin. It then travels to the uterus to stimulate it to contract more and stronger until the birthing process is completed. On the other hand, a negative feedback system functions more like a thermostat in your home. As it gets warmer, the thermostat is triggered to turn on the air conditioning. Once the preset temperature on the thermostat is reached, the air conditioner is turned off. As stated earlier, the pancreas assists in the digestive process. It does this by releasing chemicals that help to break down proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. Within the pancreas is a group of specialized endocrine tissue known as the islets of Langerhans. Within this part of the pancreas are three special types of endocrine cells known as alpha, beta, and delta. The purpose of the alpha and beta cells is the production of hormones that helps to stabilize blood glucose levels in the body. The two most important of these include glucagon, which increases blood sugar, and insulin, which decreases blood sugar. Glucagon is a very powerful hormone. The ratio between glucagon molecules and glucose molecules is 1 to 100 million. In order for glycogen to be used by the body for energy, it must first be broken down into individual molecules of glucose. Glucagon allows this to happen for the process that is called glycogenolysis. As a large part of glycogen is stored within the liver, with 5 to 8% of the weight of the liver being made up of glycogen, Most of this breakdown occurs there. Glycogen also sets about to cause gluconeogenesis, a process by which glucose is produced from fats and proteins. Insulin works in the opposite way that glucose does by working against the conversion of non-carbohydrates into glucose. It does this by forming glycogen for storage. As you would expect, insulin levels fall as glucose levels decrease. One of the primary roles of insulin is to allow key receptors on the cell membrane to open wide enough to accept glucose molecules and allow them to pass through. The liver will filter out insulin in about 15 minutes after its secretion. Therefore, it's an ongoing secretion that never stops. It's interesting to note that the brain, kidneys, and liver do not require insulin for glucose to enter the cells of these organs. It's important to remember, however, that nerve cells are very sensitive to a drop in blood sugar levels. Just a small drop can result in your patient suffering and altered mental status. The delta cells produce a chemical that is identical to growth hormone inhibiting hormone. This particular hormone, also called somatostatin, works to reduce the amount of glucagon and in insulin as well as cause food to be absorbed slower in the patient's digestive tract. It also works to impair the action of insulin on the cells. This results in a reduction of glucose absorption by the muscles and the liver. The disease diabetes mellitus is caused by an inadequate amount of circulating insulin found within the body. As important as glucose is for every organ in the body, it's vital for the brain. Glucose is the only substance that the brain can use for energy. As we stated just a moment ago, Insulin also allows the body to store such energy as glycogen, proteins, and fat. In the past, diabetes was an uncommon disease. Many doctors believe that as much as 10-12% to 12% of the American population suffers from this disease. In order to fully understand how diabetes works, let's take a look at a little bit of the physiology. If you look back at the word metabolism and understand its Greek roots, it simply means to change. Metabolism in the body is nothing more than the breakdown or the change of glucose into energy in the form of ATP with byproducts of carbon dioxide and water. When the patient eats those, causing blood glucose levels to increase, insulin is a gatekeeper that allows the molecules of the blood glucose to be used by the cell. When blood glucose levels are low, glucagon is the primary form of hormone that causes the body to release really store glycogen. In order for the body to make energy, insulin must allow glucose to enter the cell. If insulin is not present, the amount of glucose that is able to go into the cells is much too small to meet the daily demands for energy that the body has. In order for this to happen, there has to be an adequate amount of insulin as well as that insulin must work correctly to allow the movement of glucose across the cell membrane. If the body is not able to use glucose for energy, such as during times of famine and starvation, it will switch over to the metabolism of fat as a source of energy. This can lead to a condition called diabetic ketoacidosis, which we'll discuss in a moment. Diabetes is the leading cause of death in the United States. This comes about as a result of lack of insulin or the body's inability to utilize the insulin efficiently. Diabetes mellitus should not be confused with diabetes insipidus. Diabetes insipidus is caused by a lack of the hormone vasopressin. Vasopressin, also known as antidiuretic hormone, acts in the kidneys to reduce the output of urine. Diabetes mellitus is generally classified as type 1 or type 2. In the past, type 1 diabetes was also known as insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus or simply juvenile diabetes. It was called this because type 1 diabetes almost always manifested itself prior to a person entering their teen years. Type 2 diabetes was called non-insulin-dependent diabetes or adult-onset diabetes. According to the American Diabetes Association, type 2 diabetes is a disease of lifestyle. Let's take a look at each one of these types of diabetes. When the body is functioning normally, the blood glucose level, also known as a BGL, resides in the range of 60 to 120 milligrams per deciliter. If a patient fasts after midnight, their BGL should drop to less than 100. The BGL is affected not only by the amount of food eaten, but by the types of food consumed as well. The primary components of food are protein, fat, and carbohydrates. Foods that are high in carbohydrates provide the fastest form of energy to the body. Once these are eaten, the beta cells of the pancreas immediately release insulin. This hormone combines with specific receptors on the surface of the cell to allow the glucose to enter. The purpose of this is twofold. First, It allows the cell access to glucose to metabolize, and second, it provides an assurance that your body will not have to depend on protein or fat for metabolism. Excess glucose is uploaded to the liver where it is converted to and stored as glycogen. Even though you would think that after eating a large amount of carbohydrates, the blood sugar would spike, this generally doesn't happen as the release of insulin assures that the glucose is available for immediate use or storage. The liver is limited in the amount of glycogen that can be stored there, so the muscles will assist with the storage. It's estimated as much as a third of the glucose that travels through the liver is converted to fatty acids that are then stored in the adipose or fat tissue as triglycerides. If insulin is not available for normal metabolism, this fat is now broken down and converted to a soluble form that is found within the blood. This is why those who have low insulin levels usually have a high level of cholesterol and triglycerides that accompany the condition. This often leads to heart disease. Growth hormone and insulin work together to move amino acids across the cellular membrane. There, they are broken down to form new proteins. This process is known as protein synthesis. If there is an insufficient amount of insulin, the storage of protein is hampered, the muscle protein breakdown begins. The protein that is not used, known as protein wasting, is sent to the kidneys and excreted in the urine. High amounts of protein passing through the kidneys can lead to renal failure and ultimately dialysis. In next week's podcast, we'll take an even closer look at the type 1 and type 2 diabetic conditions, as well as diabetic ketoacidosis. Thanks again for listening.